Amen. Crossroads, would you bow with me this morning? God, we thank you for the truth of that song. May, may that be the declaration of our hearts, that our hearts are yours. God, that we're willing to say, take it all in the areas we're holding back or the areas where we're, we're gripping tightly, that you would, you would release our fingers, our spiritual fingers, and allow you to have full control of our lives in abandon to you, knowing that, Lord, there's a blessed life when we surrender to you. And so, God, in the areas we need surrender, I pray that you'll do that this morning. God, that we would leave differently than we came. Lord, give us eyes to see this difficult passage we're going to walk through. God, give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. And, and may we live as kingdom people, reflecting you, reflecting the goodness of your gospel, the, the worth of your name. God, the goodness of your faithfulness. And so, God, may we be a reflective people as we reflect you all the more. We love you. Lord, speak to us. Uh, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us obedient hearts. Give us a willingness to surrender in the areas we need. All for your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Good to see you. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 810. Matthew chapter 5 page 810. As always, if you're here without a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. As you turn there, a couple big things I want to highlight coming up March 16th and 17th. We have our baptism. Uh, One of my favorite services are indoor baptism. And so if you're here and you have not taken the step of obedience, and it is a step of obedience, in the scripture there is a prescribed method of believing in Jesus and then being baptized. It is a public declaration of our inward faith in Christ. And so if you haven't taken that step, we would love for you to join us. Stop by Next Steps. We'd love to get you signed up to be baptized. And and then also, coming up uh, a week from this next Tuesday, March 12th, uh, we're going to be hosting a community prayer night together. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but our community is gathering every single night uh, in the month of March to pray at different churches. And uh, we certainly want to be a part of that. And so Tuesday, March 12th, we will be hosting that at 6 p.m. Uh, we hope you'll come out and join us as we pray together as a community. We're going to be praying for our city, praying for our region, praying for our world, uh, praying for the, the, the affairs that are happening around us, and uh, praying for people. And so we hope you'll join us th- for that March 12th at 6 p.m. We're in a series through this, uh, this message of Jesus. In fact, it's the inaugural message of Jesus. It, it is the first sermon that he preaches, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason for that is because of where he preached it. He preached it on a, on a mount overlooking the sea. And so uh, it's been called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with a call that's a, a call to the Beatitudes, an attitude of the kingdom. What this sermon really is about is how we as people reflect the kingdom of God. That we are kingdom people meant to reflect the king. The king of the kingdom, Jesus. And so as we journey through this, we're going to be looking at what does it look like to be kingdom people. And it starts with this this portion called the Beatitudes, the attitude of the kingdom. And I love what Dallas Willard, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. This is what he says about the Beatitudes. Listen to this. He says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, blessed are the deprived, and blessed are the deficient. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that an interesting choice of words? Like how could people that are spiritually bankrupt feel blessed? Anybody here feel blessed in their deficiency? Anybody here feel blessed in their inadequacy? Anybody here feel blessed by their their weakness? 
This is opposite of the culture we live in that says strength and, and might is the definition. And I love how he describes what Jesus is getting at, right? Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who, who are meek, not strong. Why? Because kingdom people realize that the kingdom is not about them. Kingdom people realize that the kingdom is all about the king. See, if you and I are going to be reflective kingdom people, reflecting Jesus, we got to understand this kingdom is not about us. That we don't even squeak our way into the kingdom. That the kingdom comes because Jesus brought it to us, not because we've earned our way in. When we understand that, we understand our deficiency, when we understand our spiritual zero-ness, I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to make it one, we then understand that we need someone to help us. And so we attach our lives to Christ, and when we attach our lives to Christ, all of a sudden, we now have purpose, all of a sudden, we now reflect something greater that we could never reflect without him. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. As we journey through this, he is giving us a sense of inadequacy so we connect our lives to him, and in connecting our lives to him, we now have purpose in the kingdom. Or let me put it another way. I I remember years ago, um, I'm a baseball player. I love baseball. I play baseball. I grew up, traveled on some teams before travel teams were a thing. Uh, Had some success in the baseball world. And so when I started having boys, I, of course, immediately started teaching them baseball. And uh, funny, now none of my boys play baseball. Um, My youngest son, who is athletic, he's actually doing golf during baseball season, which is a much more expensive sport, as we've figured out. But anyway, I love baseball. So I remember when my my boys started playing. You know, he started playing eight years old, seven years old, even t-ball. But I remember I, I would help out, or I, I coach. And I remember one season specifically where uh, we had a kid on one of my son's team that would never swing the bat. Like, never swing the bat. So he would get up to the plate during a game, and he would hold the bat on his shoulder, and as soon as the pitch would come in, he would go like this. And so I took it uh, kind of as, as my task to get him to swing the bat for the season. Now, this league was interesting. Uh, they would allow players to pitch, and if the player had too many pitches, the coach would then come in and pitch. And so he went out throughout the whole season, and he never swung the bat. Now, in practice, he would swing the bat and hit the ball. And we were like, listen, you can hit the ball. You can do this. Swing the bat. Just, we don't care if you miss. Just swing it. And he just wouldn't. We, we get to about the next to last game, and, uh, and I'm just praying, Lord, get, get, let this kid get a, get a hit. All season, he never faced coach pitch. It was always against a player, and so he was, a, he was scared out of his mind. Well, this next to last game, finally he gets in, and the pitcher runs out of pitches, and so they call the coach to come in and pitch, and so I go in with the ball to pitch. And here's the goal. I'm going in, and I'm thinking, if I can just aim this ball to his bat, even if I have to throw it behind him, I will, because I want this kid to get ahead. And so I, I give him a, pe- a pep talk before I go to the mound. I say, listen. I'm not going to hit you, I promise. I'm not going to hit you. You don't, have to be any, you don't have to be scared. You've hit off, off, off of me before. I just want you to swing as hard as you can. I don't care where you swing, just swing as hard as you can. So he gets up to bat. The first pitch comes in, and he swings with all his might. He misses, strike one. So I'm thinking, okay, he's discouraged. Now he's not going to swing again. So I say, listen, that was, a, that was a phenomenal swing. I mean, in fact, the fans were cheering because he swing. He swung. So I, I say, swing, do it again, do it again. So I throw the second pitch. And this is the swing. I never will forget his face, this swing. His eyes close, his head goes up, 
and he just goes, the ball hits the bat, goes into the outfield, and you would think he had won the seventh game of the World Series. He ran to first base excited. The fans were on their feet. The kids were about ready to run out of the dugout and tackle him. You would have thought it was the greatest moment of the season. In fact, I would dare say it was the greatest moment of the season. But the problem was, he didn't hit the ball. I threw the ball at the bat. I told the coach after the game, mark it down as a hit for me. He didn't get a hit. All he did was swing the bat with his eyes closed. It was because of my great aim that he got that base hit. Now, can I tell you? We're going to read this text. In fact, we started last week by reading these six commands that Jesus gives that reflect the kingdom. These six commands that, that he inter interacts with the law. And as we look at these six commands, it's, it somewhat feels like a one-two punch. It feels when we read this like we can't even get the bat off of our shoulders. It feels as if we're swinging with all of our might, but we're never able to hit the ball. I don't know about you, but I, I read about the anger last week, and I thought, man, how are we going to do that? I read what we're going to read this morning, and let me just tell you, this is a difficult text we're going to walk through this morning, and you and I can feel as if we can't even get the bat off our shoulders. Can I tell you, Jesus is faithful that if we just swing, if we just realize the call of Christ in our lives, he will throw the ball to the bat. He will make sure that if we have a desire to reflect his kingdom and his goodness, he will make sure that that reflection will be for his glory. We just have to live it out. We have to believe it and live it out. In fact, I want to take this one step further because I want to tell you what I believe we should be as a church. If you ask me, Dave, what is your hope for Crossroads? Uh, my hope for Crossroads is that we are a church that isn't merely a place for the morally fit. That you don't just come in here because you have it all together. That, that we are a basement of grace where broken sinners can be embraced and forgiven. Or let me state it another way. If you ask me, what do I hope for our church? I hope that we're a church where sin doesn't shock us, but grace constantly moves us. That you come in here and it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. That we can come in walking with a limp, but we're not staying there. And there are many, many places and many, even many churches that say, well, you're just broken, come in, you're broken, people. No, 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 the gospel proclaims that you and I may be broken, but we don't have to stay broken. We may feel not put together, but God is faithful to do the work in the coronaries of our spiritual hearts, and he is building in us what we can never be on our own. That is the gospel. And so it's okay to be here and not be okay, but it's not, not okay to stay there. You're not just a broken part, you're a broken part put together by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the greater good of the name of Jesus Christ. So may we never settle for brokenness as our definition. May it always be willing to take the step of grace to say, grace, you move us, you change us, you transform us. And we have to remember that as we read this text. Now as we read it, we find these six commands, and they're all affected by one phrase. In every one of them, Jesus says a phrase. We saw it last week. We'll see it again three times this morning. The phrase is this Greek term, ego de lego. And this has got to be the funnest phrase in all of the Greek. It's, it's like the commercial, lego my ego. This is it, ego de lego. And what it literally means is Jesus is going to state what the culture believes, in their world, a religious culture, and he's going to respond and say, but I say to you, or literally, I myself say to you. Notice the emphasis on himself. He is going to, to rise above the culture, even the law, 
and he's going to state what it really looks like then to live it. In other words, he's going to take the law, and he's going to reaffirm the law, but he's going to reorient the law. He's going to reaffirm that the law is valuable, but he's going to then reorient us that the law was really about getting to our hearts, not just about obedience. It's not just that I blindly obey or I just say, okay, check box. It's that what he's getting at is that the law was all about the heart and many of them missed it. And so he's going he's to show us what the culture teaches and then he's going to reflect that into the way that we ought to live as kingdom people. In fact, let me, let me take, say this another way. These are going to be traits of kingdom living. These are tests of integrity. By the way, isn't it true, if you, traits, isn't it interesting to study people's traits? All of us have different traits. We all say things differently. We all uh, move differently. We all walk differently. I don't know if you know this or not. I think every person has their own type of walk. It's kind of a, a way to study people. I know uh, people meet some of my boys, and they talk with their hands, and they're like, man, you are like your dad. You're going to knock somebody out when you talk. I mean, my hands move constantly. That, my boys have those traits. They, they got some of those from me. There are some weird traits as well. I know when we moved here to the Midwest of Ohio, there are some weird things we never, never knew before we moved here. We got here and someone said, hey Dave, would you like some pop? Pop was my grandfather. And I'm like, he's dead. What are you talking about? And, and they meant soda. And so I've learned that soda and pop are the same thing. It's, I've never heard it that way. Uh, it's pop. And, or, or, or how about, um, is it coleslaw or is it just slaw? Is it... Is it, that's a, that's, a, that's a Midwest thing, is it sneakers or tennis shoes? So on the East Coast, we say sneakers. And they got to hear, most people say tennis shoes. You know? I mean, it's more formal, which is kind of funny to me, more formal. Or, or how about, um, I'm going to the lakes. I've heard people say that, I'm like, well, you're going to Lake Erie, that's one lake. There are multiple lakes, but they, they use the plural form, I'm going to the lakes. As if all the lakes are connected, which they somewhat are, but they're lakes. Or how about this? I never knew this. I, I moved here, and this is a trait of our area that I didn't know. I moved here, and I never saw, I never seen before, a drive-through beverage service. Like I never saw that. Now I understand why no one gets, wants to get out of their car when it's cold. But you you drive through and get a beverage. I, it's just crazy to me. I never saw those. Those are traits of this area, traits of people. Right? These are the kingdom traits. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom person. Take a look with me, uh, Matthew chapter five. We'll begin in verse twenty-seven. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus here is going to contrast the culture with what kingdom living looks like compared to what the culture says, even the culture of religion. And I want to look at these three things that Jesus points out. Number one, the kingdom claims 
personal pursuit of purity. The culture screams secret desires of fulfillment. So, there's a culture that's saying, go get yours. There's a kingdom that says, no purity. Notice how it begins here. Notice what Jesus says, verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This phrase is actually the seventh commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, the reason that that the Bible tells us that is because no one enters their marriage, no one enters a relationship in marriage thinking they're going to commit adultery, right? No one comes to it and says, well, in four years, three months, in two days, I'm going to have an adulterous affair. No one says that. And so there's a law that says do not commit adultery. When things go difficult, when temptation rises, don't commit adultery. So Jesus takes that law and now he, he, he reorients it. He doesn't get rid of it, he reorients it. Notice what he says. He says, but I say to you, there it is, ego de lego, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice what he does. He says, if you think righteousness is just merely not committing adultery, he says, no, no, let me go one step further. Righteousness, true kingdom living, is actually where we reflect the desires and intents of the kingdom. So, that means that in our hearts, if we have sin, the sin is there. If we look upon a woman as the lust for her, then we have, we have maybe not physically sinned, but we have sinned in our hearts. Now, in their culture, a lot of these laws were written for men, and, and there's obvious reasons why. This relates to anybody. This really connects. The law was applicable to both men and women. Jesus is getting at this idea of intent. Now, what is Jesus condemning here? Uh, first of all, it's very interesting to look at this word, lust. The word lust is the Greek word epithumeo. And epithumeo actually is the word desire. It's actually not a bad word. It's not a wrong word. It's not a sinful word. You and I have tons of desires. By the way, the scripture reveals this word in good places, where there's a desire for food, or desire for fellowship, a desire for a mate, a desire for a house, a desire for a car. These desires are not bad in and of of themselves. So Jesus here is using this word desire. Now, in the negative form, it's the word lust. By the way, notice it doesn't explicitly say lust sexually. The idea could be that you're married and you say, you know what, I wish I had that spouse. Oh, I wish I had that husband or that wife. The image here is that it doesn't have to be sexually, although it's connected to adultery. So it seems to form sexually most, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It is, do we have an intent for something we're not supposed to have? Do we want something we can't get? Now, think about the contrast of the culture. So we have a culture that screams out, Satisfy yourself with desires. Self-fulfillment. Do do whatever you want. And so we see a societal toleration to this idea of lust. Now, I want to look at it from kind of the sexual side because that is kind of implied here that this is against committing adultery. And so the implication is this is certainly sexual in nature. We live in a culture that screams at us, shows us that lust is seen as achievement. Lust is achievement. I want to look at this two ways. First of all, lust is achievement. The culture tells us, well, you got these urges. God gave you these feelings. Just go do it. Just give in. It's, it's, it's achievement, right? It's something to go after. Or, or we even Christianize this, don't we? We say things like, you can look, but you can't touch. We Christianize it. 
But what we're really saying is, I can look, I can see, I can go after it, I can have what I want, I just won't cross a line. So we live in a, a culture that says lust is just achievement. Go after it, it's yours. And what happens is our culture makes God the enemy of desire. So the culture tells us, society tells us, that God is actually fighting against your desires. No, 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 you're not allowed to have that. No, you can't do that. He's fighting against our desires. Instead of being the event, inventor of those desires, he is the enemy of those desires. So what happens? Sin begins to reign. By the way, we see this in our culture today. We see this in the Christian world today. We see this just in one form when we talk about pornography. Can I share with you some stats that are eye-opening about pornography? Again, here, it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, but he's certainly making a point against adultery. And pornography is one of them, right? There, there are 420 million pornographic internet pages online. And it's constantly growing. 420 million. Sex is the number one thing people search for on the internet. The number one search topic is sex. Number one. In fact, studies have shown that 42.7% of all internet users view pornography. Let me put that in perspective. 50% of all people that ever go online view pornography. The pornography industry is larger than the revenues of every top technology company combined. Let me, let me put that in a, a, a simpler phrase. Take Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix, and put all of their profits together, and pornography outdoes them all combined. By the way, this is true even in the Christian world. 60% of all Christian men and 30% of all Christian women claim to be addicted to pornography. 61% of Christian folks say they viewed pornography within the past year. 44% said they viewed it within the past six months. And 25% admitted that they viewed it within the past week. So pornography is rampant. In fact, uh, take this one step further. There was an article in, in uh, the magazine called The Guardian. It's a, a pop culture magazine. And they found in their study of 3,000 people, which is a pretty significant poll of, when you talk about polls, 3,000 people, The Guardian found that one in five people said they love someone other than their spouse. One in five people said they love somebody other than their spouse. The poll went on to show that 30% of men and 20% of women said they would leave their spouse in a heartbeat if the right opportunity presented itself. It's eye-opening. Let me, let me repeat that. 30% of men, 20% of women said right now if they would leave their spouse in a heartbeat if the right opportunity presented itself. Why? Because we have a, a culture that says lust is achievement. Go get yours. Just do it. Right? All these things that say it's yours, go after it. Grab it. it, it lust not only is an achievement, but lust then also becomes a place in our culture of advertisement. Lust is achievement, but lust is also advertisement. And so now, the culture understands that this is the feeling of people, and so they say that sex sells. You ever heard that expression? Sex sells. Watch most of the commercials on TV today. Watch the number one shows on TV today. Most of them are centered around sexuality. Why? Because it's something we want to achieve, so we sell it. We advertise with it. That's what the world does. Now, I want you to think about the cycle that we're in. If sex is achieved, or I should say lust is achievable, and lust is advertisement, isn't that a never-ending cycle? Achieve it, sell it, achieve it, sell it, achieve it, sell it, 
And so we see a sexual culture being created and exemplified in the culture that we live in. Can I be honest for a moment? I think it's absolutely hypocritical of our culture to proclaim that we want to protect people from sexual predators and yet scream at them sex. I think it's absolutely hypocritical to say we need to stop people from crossing lines sexually and yet continue to sell sex to them, sell lust to them, sell this idea and make it about all about getting yours. If that's not what the culture screaming, then it's greatly hypocritical to then create a movement that says you better not abuse somebody. Now please, no, I am not excusing anybody that abuses anybody. I'm not excusing crossing lines sexually. Jesus is going to speak to this. But the point of it is, it is greatly hypocritical. You don't have to be a Christian this morning to see the hypocrisy of our culture. It's saying it's advertisement and achievable, and then it's saying, but this is a line you can't cross. Well, then something has to change. So Jesus addresses this. I want you to see this. Jesus addresses this. He breaks through the culture, and he cuts the societal toleration, and he d- says this, and lust is not achievable achievement, and lust is not advertisement. Here is what it looks like. He says, if you lust after a woman or a man or whatever that looks like, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30, and if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So what is Jesus calling us to do? Well, after the service, we're going to ask you to stop by next steps. We have a chainsaw and an ice pick, an ice pick ready. And we're just going to take care of any lust you have in your life today. Is that what Jesus is saying? By the way, this is a new church growth strategy. I'm sure you'll all be back next week. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Absolutely not. What Jesus is saying is he's using hyperbole, he's using euphemism, and he's making a statement here to say this is serious. Serious measures cause for drastic means. He's saying if your right eye is offending you, and by the way, doesn't lust start in, right, the lust of the eyes, it starts in our our hearts, it comes to our eyes, and then it becomes something we want, and so the, the, the lust of flesh begins to take over and we go after it. And so he's saying if this is what happens, get rid of it. Cut it out. In in fact, in in the first century world, the right eye and the right hand was considered dominant. It was considered an area of honor and strength. Now, we know today in our culture that is flipped. Today, left-handed people are considered the smartest and the most athletic. Anybody else left-handed with me out there? All right, so so in in the first first century, it was right-handed. Today, it's left. And we're the smartest. Look it up. By the way, that's not a lie. Look it up. We are the smartest and we are the most athletic people, left-handed people. But in the first century, right hand was looked at as a place of honor. So what Jesus is actually saying here, by the way, I'm kidding, right-handed people. Don't be offended by that. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is, is we are to sacrifice our best in order to reflect the kingdom principles of the king. If we want to reflect kingdom living, then we ought to sacrifice our best if our best is getting in the way of God's plan for our lives. In fact, you know this if you understand amputations. Amputations happen because an infection has gone to a certain spot, and that infection will spread if you don't take it out. That's what Jesus is getting at. If there is lust, take it out. Get rid of it. Don't let it have its way. It it will eat you alive from the inside. It will affect your heart. Now, how do we do that? I want to give you very simply, very quickly, how do we do that? Um, this is a verse that I have memorized. This is a verse I quote to myself constantly. It's 2 Timothy 2.22. It's real easy to remember because it's 2.22.2. 2, 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2.22. And it says this, and, and I love the way it says this, and I believe it's something we should all maybe memorize. It says, so flee youthful passions, youthful lust, and pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue 
love and pursue peace. And then it says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, this is telling us three different things. Notice that verse telling us three different things. First of all, when it comes to earthly passions, we are to run from them. Youthful earthly passions, we want to run from them. We want to get away from lust. We want to run from lust. Get away from it. Don't play around with it. Don't tease it. Don't tempt it. Just get away from it. Run for your life. That's the word there. Run. Run for the things that are going to hold you captive. Run away from the traps. Run away. By the way, that may mean we have to be careful what we see. That may mean, right, drastic measures calls for drastic means. That means I may have to uh, watch where I go. I may not be able to be in that room with that coworker because there's temptation there. I gotta take a drastic measures, run away from it. Secondly, we're gonna run to something. I love the Bible because it doesn't just say run from, it says to run to. And so what do we run to? We run to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now I want you to notice the progression. When I run from the flesh, when I run from sin, when I run from lust, what happens? Now I choose righteousness. And when I choose righteousness, what is the result? My faith increases. I now am more in tune with the love of God. And now my life is at peace. I don't have chaos, I have peace. Now when you give in to lust, what happens? When lust takes over, and we begin to think intently about someone, what happens? Now I'm on unrighteousness. Unrighteousness then doesn't build faith, it actually causes fear. Then we begin to think that God doesn't love us. God is distant. By the way, I, I'm talking to people all the time, and, and they're struggling with sin, and we've all been there. We're struggling with sin, and what happens? It feels as if God doesn't love us anymore. Well, why? And I, I say this to people when they say that. Well, it just seems that God doesn't love us. I, I say, God doesn't move. God doesn't change his love for you. You now have put a barrier between your experience of God's love by sin. And so what happens? Now, instead of love, I, I feel... I feel struggle. I feel strife. And instead of peace, I feel chaos and confusion. See, that's the image there. When I run run from sin, I run to righteousness, love, faith, love, and peace. Thirdly, I run with. Notice he says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are called to run with other people. Notice it's not just people that are going to agree with us, It's that we run with people who are with a pure heart, going to lead us, going to direct us, going to challenge us, and at times they're going to drag us to keep us away from sin. That's why we stress communities here. We don't do that because we just want everybody in small groups, just so our numbers look good. No, no, no. We stress communities here because we believe faith is not meant to be lived alone. That we all need people in our life who are going to walk this journey with us, who are going to challenge us. And I know in my life at times, they're going to drag me when I'm struggling. They're saying, no, 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 we're not letting you stay behind. You're coming along. Let's go. Now, we take this seriously here. I just want to share with you one illustration of this. We want to guard from lust. In fact, our elders, our pastoral staff, we have something called Covenant Eyes, Safe Eyes. It's, it's a, an online program that has an accountability part that sees what we get to search on our computers, our phones. I have two pastors that are around uh, the region that... that, that actually have access. They see everything I search for. They see what I search. They, they see it, and they reflect that. We, we have reports on that, and we talk about that. And, and we guard ourselves to, to not let lust take over. And so on the internet, on the computer, we guard ourselves by having accountability. And the hope is in the moments where there's weakness, we know that person is there with us, and so we, we don't give in to that. Folks, we need to run with somebody. Run with somebody so that we can overcome this idea of lust. And what happens as a result? 
we reflect Christ all the more. Let me ask you this morning, where is lust gripping you at the heels? Where is lust trying to drag you down? And then what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Now we move on to the second category. Again, society versus Jesus, ego de lego, what he says. Number two, genuine committed relationship. The kingdom calls us to genuine committed relationships. The culture cries out shallow disposable relationships. The kingdom says we should be committed to the relationships that God has given to us. The culture says the relationships are all about you anyway, so just dispose if you don't like them. Now take a look with me at verse 31. And again, this is a difficult passage. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now again, it could go back and forth here. But what is Jesus talking about? Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 was a law given that said this is how a divorce happens. It was how a certificate of divorce was written. Now, this was never God's intention. This was never God's plan. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that God hates divorce. Now, I want you to hear this. God doesn't hate the divorcee. God hates divorce. God hates divorce. God never intended. In the garden, it was meant to be forever. It was meant to be perfect. It was meant to be God-honoring. But God doesn't want this. God doesn't desire this. But he knows God understood in the fall, in sin, in brokenness, divorce happens. And so in Deuteronomy 24, there's a law about how divorce takes place. Now, you move through the generations. We come to Jesus' day, and they began to debate what this looks like in the Jewish culture. In fact, there was a book written um, after the time of Jesus, but about the time of Jesus, that gives the oral tradition of the rabbis. Now, this is a little bit of history, but it's so important. How do we know what was meant in the Bible? Because it's been confirmed by other books, by other texts. Not authoritative, not the Bible, but, but they give us some insight. And it was the oral tradition of the rabbis. The rabbis built law on top of the law to protect the law. And so this book is called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is written by the rabbis, and this is what they spoke and taught. There are 55 pages written about divorce in the Mishnah. 55 pages. In fact, there's little things like you can write a certificate of divorce on a, uh, a bull's horn, but you can't write it on a live animal, things like that. But the whole point of those 55 pages were trying to figure out when is a divorce allowable? What does it look like? When can a certificate of divorce be given? That was the crux of the argument. And there were three main views, three main views in Jesus' day. First of all, there was the view of a guy named Shammai. Shammai, he taught the divorce was only allowed for unfaithfulness. That was one of the predominant views of Jesus' day. Secondly, there was a guy named Hillel. Hillel was a little bit more liberal, and he said you could divorce for any reason. In fact, he wrote in his document that you could divorce your wife if she burned your food. That wives could divorce their husbands if they didn't grow a beard. Sorry, honey. I've tried. You've seen it. She doesn't want me to grow the beard. There was another guy named Aqaba. Aqaba then took Hillel's teaching and he said, no, no, you can divorce someone even if you're attracted to somebody else. He took it to another level and he said, listen, you're walking down the street and you see somebody and you go, wow, they're hot. See you, honey. I'm going to, right? You could do that. That's the image, right? So here's what happens in the culture, right? Because we're wise, we're slick. So in the first century, if you wanted to find a reason for divorce, you could just pick a teaching and follow it. These were all authoritative people. These were all rabbis. These were all teachers. So, hey, I'm going to divorce. I'm going to go with this view because I like it. So here's Jesus. Jesus is going to come against this. Now, before I tell you what Jesus says, I want you to notice what Jesus also says. Jesus 
doesn't say there's no reason for divorce, does he? Notice he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word there is the word porneia, where we get our word pornography. For any sexual reason, there is a reason and cause for divorce. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives a second reason. And that reason is abandonment. When a, a, a spouse says, I'm done with you, I'm divorcing you, I don't want to fight for this. And you say, wait, I want to be with you, I want to make this work. And they leave you. That is a cause for divorce, and that's an acceptable cause for divorce. Jesus is not trying to make an argument that they all were trying to make of that day. He's not trying to say, here's why divorce happens and here's when it shouldn't. What Jesus is getting at, notice the words, but I say to you. What Jesus is arguing is for the permanence and the fight for marriage. Jesus is not trying to give another view for divorce. What he's trying to say is there's plenty of views for divorce. We as kingdom people ought to fight for marriages. That we reflect a fight and a call for permanence. A fight and call to work out marriages. To make the most of what God has created. By the way, an uh, uh, interesting stat was done by the Journal, Journal of Psychology and Christianity. They found that 65% of husbands and 55% of wives in the U.S. will commit adultery. Blew my mind. 65% of men and, and uh, 55% of wives will commit adultery, according to the Journal of Psychology and Christianity. So Jesus here is arguing against the culture. And he says, no, marriage matters. Marriage matters to God. Marriage should be fought for. This is not about dissolution. This is about the importance and sacredness of marriage. Now, you might say, what, what does this mean for me? I want to make a couple points here as we reflect this to ourselves. This means that we can't, let, we can't let our culture tell us that marriages are disposable. When the politician or when the great athlete makes it look like, well, these are just disposable people and it seems like it all works out in the end anyway. No, we stand against that. When we live in a culture where every show on television just shows brokenness in marriages, we, we don't believe that, right? We fight for marriages. That's kingdom people. We fight for marriages. So what does that mean? If you're single here or you're married here, that means that marriage is not about fulfilling your desires. Marriage is not about us. If you believe marriage is about your desires, it's always going to be superficial. Marriage is much deeper than that. Marriage is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, it is a demonstration of the gospel that he came and self-sacrificed for us. So when I self-sacrifice in my marriage, I am now making a reflection of him. That's what marriage is all about, is I reflect him. And can I tell you a little secret I found in my marriage? When I sacrifice myself for the sake of my wife, she is more inclined to self-sacrifice for me as well. And what happens? Both of us feel satisfied and fulfilled. Not perfectly, but we feel satisfied and fulfilled. Why? Because we both understand our purpose is not to get ours. Our purpose is to serve the other. And in serving the other, we reflect God. In reflecting God, we find purpose. All of a sudden, marriage takes a new form. So, if you're here and you're married, superficial marriage stems from superficial kingdom living. Superficial marriage is actually because you're not seeing the purpose of your marriage. It's superficial, and so you've got to go a little bit deeper in the call that you have in marriage. Now, I know some of you here, you're, you've walked through the pains of divorce. And I want to say a couple things. There are some of you, you've walked through divorce, and, and you didn't want the divorce. You never desired it. 
there was something that you wish you could go back and change about it, but, but you found yourself in that circumstance. There, there are others, others of you, you've walked through divorce, and it was because of your own immaturity, it was your own decision, it was your sin that caused the divorce. Can I tell both of you, can I say to both of those groups that I know some of you say you wish you could go back and just change it all, divorce is not a scarlet D that you wear. It's not. In fact, I find that in the cross of Christ, in the atonement of Christ, there is healing and there is restoration to him even when divorce happens. It is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, I want to remind us this morning that Jesus went to a cross knowing the sins we were going to commit in the future and still went to the cross. Jesus knew what was going to happen in our lives and yet he still loved us enough to go to the cross. You want to talk about reconciliation, you want to talk about forgiveness, Christ still did it even knowing what you were going to face. So you can't question that he's not willing to redeem your situations that maybe didn't go the way you expected. The question today is, will you reflect the kingdom now in response? Will you reflect the kingdom in your life? That's the point. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this kingdom call. That divorce should be a last resort, not a first option. That divorce should be, as it happens, Jesus said it happens, but it's a last resort. It's a fight that we make for marriages. And if you've been divorced, you know that and should call that and respect that, right? You, you, would, you would agree with that. And then when it happens, to know that God is able to work in the midst of it. That there is solace in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't find there any accident that after saying this, he heads into this third area of a contrast between culture and kingdom. Number three, authentic lives of integrity are superficial lives that are fake and dishonest. Notice what he says. Verse 33, again, you have heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord what is you have sworn. In their day, they would take oaths, and they would make an oath based upon the thing that they thought was most valuable. And so Jesus here says, heaven or earth or Jerusalem, or even your own head. Notice the response in each of them is, God owns them all. You make an oath of heaven, he owns it. You make an oath of earth, he owns it. You make an oath of the Jerusalem, it's his place. You make an oath even of your head, you don't choose whether you have gray hair or black hair. I guess you could change gray hair nowadays, but, you, you, right, that God determines that. The point is, every time that an oath is made, it ultimately comes back to God, and that's dangerous. To make an oath before God is dangerous. So, what Jesus gets at is very simply this. Notice it, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Kingdom people speak truth. Kingdom people do two things. They tell the truth. 100% of our words, 100% of the time, we speak the truth. And, and secondly, we keep commitments consistent. Again, we speak the truth, and we keep commitments consistent. I, I love what James says, James 5.12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's that simple. Our yes is yes, our no is no. So we tell the truth, tell the truth, and we keep our commitments. Now, we live in a culture where you make a commitment, and then all of a sudden you change that commitment, you justify that commitment. And what happens, we begin to self-justify against our own very word. We become contradictory. Let's take lust and marriage, for example. If I say, God, I, I don't want to give in to lust, am I willing to keep my commitment? I, am I willing to let my yes be yes and my no, no? Am I willing to say no to lust, yes to God? If I'm in a marriage and I'm, am I fighting for it, am I saying, yes, God, I'm going to fight for this, or am I saying, no, 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 I'm going to do it my way? Or no, God, I'm not going to allow this to happen in my marriage. 
Am I letting my yes be yes, my no be no? Now again, there's forgiveness when we don't. We walk with limbs. We don't have it all together. We're swinging for the fence yet don't see the ball. But God is faithful. The question is, as kingdom people, do we keep our words? Do we keep our promises? Do we keep our commitments? Now, when we don't, and if you can ask me if there was one that stands out here, it's this one. Why? Because the others are controlled by it. If we don't keep our commitments, you know what we're actually doing as kingdom people? We're actually making Christ a mockery. You may say, well, how do we do that? Well, when I don't keep my commitments and people know that I'm a kingdom person, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm making it look like Jesus doesn't keep his commitments. Jesus is a promise keeper. Jesus keeps his commitments. Before the foundation of the world, it says he was going to come and die on a cross. When he was on earth, and he, it says he could have called 10,000 angels and ended it all, he kept his commitment. He went to the cross for us. He walked into the grave for us. He keeps his promises. And when we don't keep our word, we're reflecting the Christ that seems to not keep his word. So as kingdom people, we want to reflect a Christ, a king that keeps his word. And so we want to be a people of yes and a people of no. Maybe for you it's in your family, in your home right now. Yes is yes and no is no. I know I've talked to this with my boys and at times when I say yes and then go against it, they'll say, Dad, remember the verse. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's true. In my workplace, is my yes, yes? Is my no, no? Am I trustworthy? Am I a person of integrity? Am I integritous in my actions? In, in, in the church, am I letting my yes be yes? If I commit, am I keeping it? If I say no, am I saying no? Am I meeting it? Our, our words matter. We should say what we mean and we should mean what we say. It's a reflection of the kingdom. When it comes to lust, am I saying no? Am I saying yes to righteousness? My marriage, am I saying no to sin, no to struggle, no to disposing? Yes, God, I, I want you, I want you. We are called to this. This is what kingdom living looks like. Not easy. Kingdom living, and all of us maybe today, I know I do, I feel like I'm swinging the bat and not hitting the ball. But if I surrender my life, there's a king that will take that ball and he will bounce it off that bat. He will. He is faithful to work when we give him our obedience. He is faithful to work when I say, Lord, I don't want what the culture says. I want ego de lego but you say. We're going to end here with a song just to reflect. Reflect on our marriages. If you're single, reflect on what you're seeking. If you're on the brink of divorce, maybe it's a moment where you can just pray, God, help me not to give up so easily. May divorce be a last option, not a first resort. Maybe you're here and you're walking and you're struggling with lust. I want you to think about this. There is a faithful God who is able to work. He's able to work. He is a king that's with you in this kingdom. He's able to offer forgiveness clean you from the inside out. Would you, would you bow with me in prayer? God, we want to thank you. Lord, your word is not easy, but it's good. God, I need this reminder. I need these reminders of my heart being purified, of my faith being increased and challenged. God, we, we don't want to be who we are. We want to become what you are making in us. God, a kingdom people. And so God, reflect that. Do that work even right now. Do that work in our hearts. May we say no to lust. May we say yes to righteousness. May we say yes to marriage. May we fight for it. And in those moments where it doesn't work, may we see and understand your forgiveness, that you make us clean, that you reconcile and redeem us to yourself, and that you restore what the locusts have eaten, 
And God, in the areas where we, we're not keeping our word, I pray that you would help us to be commitment keepers, consistent truth tellers to reflect you, our promise keeper. In your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen. Listen to this song with me if you would. See you.
Amen. We have a God that is able to make us clean when we cross the line, when we've moved too far. There's a God that's saying, come on in. You're still in the kingdom. Come on back. He is faithful. He is just, the word says, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us renewed, to, to purify our hearts, to create in us a clean heart so that we may honor him. If you're here this morning and, and maybe you've crossed some lines and you want to talk to somebody, I want to encourage you, would you stop in next steps? We have some people ready to pray for you. If you're here, and maybe, maybe for you, you're, you're wondering about this, this new faith and what does this look like to live for Christ. And you want to know what does it mean to, to step across the line in faith, to trust Jesus as your Savior. We'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you and share with you how you can know, not hope so, maybe so, think so, but you can know salvation today. Maybe you're here and you're walking through some marriage struggles or maybe you're divorced and you're wondering, what is God's purpose in my life in the midst of this? Or maybe you've lost a loved one and you're saying, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? God redeems. God reconciles. God takes what looks like rags and he makes something great out of them that reflects his glory and works for our good. And so as you leave this morning, just reflect on these truths. And may we live as kingdom people this week. May our yes be yes and our no be no. All for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King, our good King. Thanks for being here this morning. We love you guys. God bless you. Thanks for joining us.